Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode is about standards, de facto standards, cloud standards, how we are creating repeatable results for the marketplace. And if we're creating marketplaces where standards can be shared and we talk around Amazon as the primary part, but we also talk about hardware and Kubernetes and the marketplaces in those environments. Um, and they're all important uh, to consider in, in what's happening. And are we creating standardized cloud infrastructure? Uh, the short answer is no, but how we get there is a really interesting conversation. So buckle up and enjoy the ride. We definitely have the the cooking um, the frog um, aspect of getting used to Amazon and the complexity of of everything that's going on. Um, and this is, I think, this is a good place to to sort of go into into informal standards and what what we've been doing because Amazon, because it's the leader, is definitely setting the standards for how this stuff should work and and what the interactions are, but. I've spent the last week interfacing, doing Terraform plans that are that cross. Or they're not. They don't cross anything. They're unique plans per cloud. But um, you know, I've been trying to normalize the the way they get driven, and it's insanely different. Like each each cloud has very different um, schemas and and models and and all the stuff that back you know has to back it up. Um, yeah. Completely different uh, approaches to to security and authentication as well. I mean, IAM is more or less uh, similar across the board, but how the uh, various services interface with IAM, like in Google, you have worked with identity. Amazon, you you have this and that. You you go to IBM or Oracle Cloud. Those those are yet different. So, so, so yeah, you know what? Amazon is doing what's called the de facto standard, or that's what they're trying to do. This is yeah. not the first company to try it, and it's not the last company. Uh, I'll give you an example. This goes back a ways. But there was um, in the CAD industry um, back in the, 98, in the 80s, actually, there was a bunch of um, companies that were developing CAD. And one of them, AutoCAD, won the war. And the way they did it is they created a de facto standard for translating all the other companies' stuff into their stuff. And they created something called DXF, which was a format translator. And they won the war. <laughs> no company could compete against them. <laughs> so... And did they do that because they invested in importing other people's formats? Because right? you can win the war just by being the, 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 the lead. They weren't um, the best. I can tell you that. Yeah. There were several others that were better than them. Um, they, um, yeah, yeah they, they, it, they created this import capability that made it really easy. Well, because remember, the whole point of CAD computer-aided design is to 
share files. Right? And what's the point yeah. otherwise? <laughs> so, yeah, I, the, the, the standard in the end is, is whoever uh, has the, the, the largest user base. Um, I mean, if we, we've AutoCAD. seen it over and over, yeah, like AutoCAD, like even even Gmail, like Google's mm-hmm. mail implementation is absolutely not standard if you look at their RFCs, but everyone uses it, so everyone conforms to what Google implemented. And, uh, this, is, and, and, this is how the web, no, I'm, I'm thinking the same, this is how the web standards, right? Whoever, you know, a lot of the, what, IE and um, Netflix, or not Netflix, um, Escape, Firefox, um, browsers, right? Their quirks became, you know, de facto standards because they had to be widely supported. And then people would, um, in order for compatibility to go, they would they would re-implement the same quirks. Yep. And, and it's also one of the reasons why we are having such headaches on, on the security side of, of things, because the, the the people who built the products know that like the, the fastest adoption decides the standard. So they, they aim to be first on market and they cut corners. And of course, security is one of the earliest corners that frequently gets cut. Yeah. But I mean, does that, and the, I mean, this is the nature of the question. Does that mean that Amazon's, and I, I haven't seen this happening, that Amazon's um, APIs have become the de facto standard? I mean, it has for S3. There's no doubt about that. S3 APIs are the object, store, the stored object paradigm that people re-implement. Um, I don't think Amazon's APIs have become the de facto standard because AP, because they're they're, they're only usable within a the Amazon environment. They're very hard to to um, to export. And in fact, you know, think about how Amazon's struggling at the edge. Yeah, I, I would agree with with you, Beth, on that. I I don't see Amazon as Amazon's API as a standard yet. I see their products as becoming standard, like we said, S three. I am as well. Like they, they started and it's been adopted. Um, their marketplace for 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 applications to to some degree. I mean, they they, they kind of adopted things like well, things that like for example, Turnkey Linux has done in, in initially is that uh, you basically just push a button and and, and you're ready to go. Uh, but yeah, they're they're, they're still maybe. When we even when we look at Terraform and, and, and going back to the, the issue that you were discussing, Rob, like yeah. each cloud requires its own Terraform provider, and they're all they all behave differently. So there's no standard there yet. I, and I, but I don't know that we're driving driving towards. And maybe the, let me let me back up and, and see if there's a bigger statement, right? It, is it? Are there things where markets drive towards standardization and places where there's no pressure for them to standardize? Like the, the Joel Swatsky example of having a standard, you know, um, audio jack created, you know, marketplaces on both sides. Um, and that I think that was awesome. And we have we have examples of places where having a standard interface creates a bigger market for everybody. Um, 
<laughs> Although Rob, I should point yeah. out Dell, Dell was one of the worst offenders in terms of not wanting to standardize on any parts. <laughs> I totally, well, this is just yeah. to me is because part of that experience was when they um, tell a short story that the group I was in at Dell was manufacturing servers that didn't conform to Dell standards either. And it was, <laughs> a, it was incredibly hard to do anything um, because they, you know, even the Dell tools didn't work consistently so. on the servers. Um yeah, I, I'm not just tools. I mean, <laughs> yeah, parts as well. Like, good luck finding parts for an other production system. Like, yeah, Dell cannot give you the proper replacement part because they don't touch it anymore, and it's non-standard. Yeah, I have a good story about that. So okay. years ago, I worked at a company. I was actually one of the founders of a company that did data protection services, and we what we did is we we had customers set up servers that were like storage boxes basically and they happened to have been dell servers because they were cheap and you know that was the right customer base and um we had one server that that in dell of course changes models like you know you turn Mm -hmm. around and they change models right and um so we had this one particular box that was really awful and and it um the fan on the um, it had a fan on the um, chip, the the CPU chip, and the fan failed. So we contacted Dell. You know, it was under warranty, and we contacted Dell, and they they kept like pretending that we had that we had closed the ticket. <laughs> uh, so so and and finally, the CEO of my company um, had uh, he was friends with the general counsel at Dell. So he called him up and he said, could you fix this? We need this part. And so two days later, the part showed up and had obviously been taken out of another computer. <laughs> yeah, no. this, this is this is crosses lines with the right to repair question. Um, Absolutely. And I, and, by the way, I tried to find the part and I found it in Taiwan. You know, I did a Google search. And it, it was incompatible, right? Because it didn't have the right connectors. <laughs> uh, so to what extent are companies incented to not follow standards? I mean, Dell Dell did this, you know, and I wasn't I'm not privy to any Dell Dell rationale for, for doing it. Some of it's moving fast, like we started discussing, and some of it's, you know, is is, is some of this a commercial advantage to not not have compatibility that's the differentiation point in terms of especially when we talk about cloud providers what can i as a cloud provider use to differentiate myself if everybody is using s3 compatible storage apis and everything quote unquote looks and feels like s3 then where's the advantage i'm able to offer in terms of advanced replication or uh, data integrity whatever it might be um, now one would argue you could still leverage some same basic standards that we do with like networking and underlying storage constructs. Um, But I think it's delivering it as a a paid service. I think having it look just like another vendor or provider, I think in some ways, perception wise makes it seem like you're all the same. 
Yeah, but yeah, but you I know, a fan part that connects to the motherboard with a slightly different connector. What's the what's the competitive advantage there? There's none, zero. So it's the it's the from marketing standpoint, I can say this is a new shiny connector that's totally different than everybody else. It, it's inside the box. It's a controller. It's a control of the ecosystem. It's a control of the ecosystem. It's not, it's not, yeah, they're not selling to to me, you know, I'm buying the server, but you know. Well, there 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 is there is the Oh, if you want a replacement part for this, you have to get it from Dell. You can't yes. go buy it. Right? I mean, we would have we would have cases where people would buy servers and they would be like, yeah, but we don't want, we just want, you know, you can't buy it with no RAM, but we just want the minimal amount of RAM in the server because you knew that somebody was popping out those DIMMs and putting in, you know, direct purchase DIMMs from another vendor, you know. Absolutely. Um, and that was, you know, that was a huge profit. Center, you know, the selling the commodities was a huge profit center for, for Dell. Yep. Um, I mean, it, it's, I mean, it's not like Dell is the, is the only culprit for, for that. I mean, look at Apple, what, what they've been doing historically, like with their con with their proprietary connectors, with their proprietary screwdriver uh, uh, screw heads that, that only their screwdrivers can open. Um, it. It, it happens across all the industry. It just happens yeah. to be that on the server market, Dell is the particularly notorious yeah, infringer. And, and my my goal is not to call out Dell here. It, it's 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 I do think it's a market, it's a market force, and people you know there's a right to repair component for this too because I know that Dell had uh, calls on hey my server's not working because people bought. Cheap RAM, we actually would have this and see it all the time. It's like, oh yeah, uh, you bought RAM that's not, you know, banks are failing and your server's crashing, and you know, so we're we you know we're supporting and and you know we have this even at software level. Somebody buys systems and the you know systems are flaky and and it shows up as management problem. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there is an element of. Amazon or any, I mean, I'm picking on Amazon now, but, um, you know, having APIs that work for them um, means that the tools, that their tools are going to be, have preferential treatment. I don't know that, that helps the consumer. In, a, in the ideal case, it, it might help the consumer by protecting them from knockoffs and so on, at least so, so that it, that's the way mm. it's usually sold. Uh, in, in the practical case, it, it's more about protecting the company from from lawsuits that are unfunded and, and from expenses that they don't need otherwise. It, but I guess I keep coming back to this idea: when does Amazon, either because of market forces or and I'm, I'm, Amazon's just the biggest, um, become a you know, their, their APIs or their standards become a de facto standard. And maybe they don't. Yeah, I think that they don't in this case. Um, you know, and I'll, and I'll view it from, you know, my customers. I can tell you a pretty high percentage of the enterprises are pretty leery about putting all of their applications in Amazon. 
uh, particularly that, you know, what is it, the the $1,000 a month, the $100,000 a month bill rule. Um, so I'm seeing increasingly most of our customers are, are spreading their application. They're moving into the cloud, no question, but they're spreading it across cloud vendors. And that is a conscious mm-hmm. decision on their part. Um, and of course, Verizon's responding with, we have a number of products that we call multi-cloud, which basically enable customers to bridge across Amazon. It's usually Amazon and, and Microsoft are the two, although we see Google and some of them want to tie into Salesforce and you know some of the other SaaS applications. Um, and I'd say for the enterprise, that's becoming more and more common than just putting everything in Amazon. Where we see people putting everything in Amazon is at the mid-market level. Um, you know what? I, I actually see the opposite. I, I, I mean, it, it might be also just a, like the field, but um, it's like small market, like small company startups, they tend to be single cloud by necessity because they can't. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. Well, they, a lot of them are just using SaaS products. So, you know, they're just signing up for Workday or whatever. Yeah, right. I, I, I see mid-level enterprises um, looking at multi-cloud as some, some amount of diversification, not putting all their eggs in one basket, et cetera. But then when you go to larger enterprises, uh, you start seeing another roadblock, which is... Like certifications like DOD, FedRAMP, etc. Oh, yeah. And yeah, doing that multi cloud is so much more difficult. That's sometimes just easier to, to go back to single cloud. It's interesting. I do not see that in the enterprise from Verizon's perspective. Um, I see just the opposite at the enterprise level. Uh, and the reason I say that is because, you know, we, we do a lot of SD WAN deployments and you need no SD-WAN nodes in the cloud. And mm. um, <laughs> you know, uh, we have it in some clouds and not others. And there's been some problems related to Kalia. I, I don't know how much you know about Kalia, but you probably don't want to know about it. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so it's been actually very difficult for us to, to set up SD-WAN nodes in, in cloud, uh, you know, it, within customer cloud environments. And, but we see what they're asking for. And they're always asking for Microsoft Azure and AWS. Which makes, which makes sense to me. Those are the dominant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but again, yeah, it, it, it might be a, a matter of looking at the, the different markets and Definitely. You're you're looking from the Verizon perspective. I'm I'm looking at from uh, from from a different perspective. So yeah. I mean, I see it. I mean, either way, there, we've we've got people in multiple cloud infrastructures and and footprints, but not a big push towards um, either by the vendors or by the customers to have unified experience. Uh, I mean, there were attempts like that, like like Amazon 
don't try to do to get others to adopt cloud formation, for example. Um, I, I think that I think that the, the, the problem is that there's no middle ground that the the cloud vendors are, are willing to agree on. Like yeah. clearly Amazon wants to wants others to adopt uh, a standard that benefits Amazon. Uh, Google is going to want to others to adopt a, a standard that benefits them, uh, and and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's hard because um, I mean the, the 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 risk there is that if you standardize, you enable your own customers that you've been retaining because the 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 effort to move out to a different platform has been too high. You enable them to move away. I mean, you also have the chance of absorbing the, the market of another vendor if your platform is better than theirs. Uh, but then again, that means that said other vendor might be hesitant to adopt your standards. <laughs> you're, you're making me think about like IPMI and Redfish on the, on the metal side where, it, you know, and, and it's, this is funny because there's a certain extent to which you can say, yeah, everybody has a create VM and a attach whatever, and they should. You would think that those could become standardized, but um, which is what like we see happening with Redfish. But at some point, it the variations start so close to that action <laughs> that that the standardizing that you know you making that call standardized really provides very little value because there's so much other operational work that has to go with it. Is that yeah, right? It, so, so, go ahead. Yeah, it, I, I agree with you. It, it's little value for the vendor to provide it. Uh, and that's why typically we see uh, companies developing their own API layers that, that implement that logic. So like, do like create a VM for for Amazon, or create a create a VM for uh, Google or, or Azure or DigitalOcean, whatever. Uh, the the catch is that the the companies that implement their own APIs like on on top of that end up being created end up creating opinionated APIs for their own purposes, and those uh, are not frequently useful for 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 other companies. And the, it's interesting because I think opinionated is a key word with it, um, right? It's you know, the, to make the stuff easier to use, having an opinionated process that works makes a ton of sense. Um, different clouds are optimized in different ways um, or have different sort of operating philosophies to, to walk you through that process. Um, and I mean, it, and, and, and I mean, you, you see third parties also trying to to provide generic enough systems. Uh, like I mean, look, look at uh, look at Ansible Galaxy. Like the there, there's there's plenty of people who provide their own implementation or or their, their, their own opinion about how things should be created, but there is no consensus about any one of those becoming a standard. So we're just kicking the ball down the road. It's the same with the Linux distributions. How many Linux distributions are there? Yep. 
you're in a twisty little maze of Linux distributions, all slightly different. Yeah. And, and for me, it goes back to that differentiation thing where whether it is is perceived value or actual value, everyone wants to create something that's either slightly different to solve their use case in a, a different way um, or showcase some sort of capability in, in a different fashion. So from a, a vendor standpoint, there's, there's really no inherent interest in trying to, to standardize at the at what off, at what is often perceived as the value layer between customers because I mean like, obviously at this point for the most part we all know that all cloud providers are using some some sort of storage protocol that is standardized or networking protocol or all these various things but when we start talking about the service that I'm actually paying for as a customer um, whether it makes sense or not because depending upon who you ask all object storage is relatively the same but what I can get in terms of, of differentiation might be that that little bit extra of where, oh, I like AWS's S3 much more than I, I do like Azure's object storage. Does that become enough? I guess if, if you're doing something that requires very demanding object storage, that might be enough to uh, have you pick one over the other. It's it depending upon the service. It, it, that's not going to be the reason I, I choose AWS over Azure. The aggregate of those might be in terms of, let's say there's five or six different services that I'm going to use. I like the way that AWS responds or I can interact with AWS over in mm. Azure uh, in, in terms of, of that model. And so that's that's where from a vendor standpoint, I think that it's always going to be. Um, how can I provide that additional value or the way I... I perceive doing it is better than Azure goes about doing a thing or GCP goes about doing a thing. Well, there, you bring up you bring up a good point. There's actually two perspectives here. There's the vendor perspective, and the vendor, you know, wants to get in and become the de facto standard, as we talked about earlier with with my example of um, AutoCAD. Um, and then, um, you know, and Amazon certainly fits that criteria that they 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 invented the market. They came in and they they have continued to show that they want to crush the competition um, yeah. <laughs> and become the de facto standard. But from the customer's perspective, from the user's perspective, um, using de facto standards um, is is fraught with risk. And, uh, you know, there's a reason why Amazon has been called the Roach Motel, right? Because <laughs> um, people come in and they think, I can't get out. Um, so. Yep. And then you've got the people who, who think they, or who aim to, to be cloud agnostic from the beginning. But you're you're essentially tripling or quadrupling your your effort in, in doing so, right? Like you 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 can't take advantage advantage of RDS because of course that's Amazon specific. Oh, uh, if, you if you're cloud agnostic at the at the application level, yes. yeah, yeah, you get the least common denominator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, and I've seen that. Um, I have definitely seen customers that have deliberately taken that cloud agnostic approach and they have to be really careful about 
how, you know, what parts go to what. One, one of my customers split, they put their database in one cloud vendor, oh, no. one cloud vendor, and they put their applications in another cloud vendor. You know, don't don't get me started on why they did that, but that's what they decided to do. I thought that was kind of harebrained, but most of them don't do that. Most of them just have applications that it's the same application, but they they want to cross over multiple vendors. And it absolutely it's it causes them to write the applications in a very different way. You're essentially managing your own data center just on the cloud. Of course. But some of these companies were doing that before. So for them, it's that's like, okay, yeah. So now I'm not doing colo, I'm doing it in the cloud. Who cares? Sorry. And in no. some cases, they have a third, third component. Um, if they're big enough, they have a third component that is in fact a colo, you know, where they've stood up their own cloud. Yeah, and hence uh offerings like uh, Amazon Outposts, because that, that helps them bring that in. Yeah, at least, at least have a consistent API. I'm not sure. It... Right. I, 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 okay, when I say it helps them bring that in, it helps Amazon bringing the customers that are on the fence about that. Ah. Uh, so so it, it's, I, I see it as a sales tool, not, not so much as, as, as an actual management tool that I would use personally. This is, to me, this is part of the, the operational decision, though, is that if you are all in on Amazon's APIs and CLIs and you've decided that your tooling, right, your tooling depends on it, you've, you've worked, worked it in, it makes an outpost makes a ton of sense, although it exposes its own operational challenge. Outpost is um, extremely expensive for what it is. <laughs> it's very, uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it, it's basically, I think the minimum is 750000 and it's it's basically just a rack of equipment. That's all it is. <laughs> I can see the use case for, for, for things like Outpost. Like, if you have very strict data residency requirements, that like, not even in, 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 in a cloud data center, but something that where you control your own access, but you might want to manage it via... The Amazon APIs. <laughs> that's the that's a key. Go ahead and use an outpost. Right, um, but it, it, it has to it has to be a management advantage for you to, to yeah. leverage their API. So there, there, and that's I guess I keep coming back to are there APIs? I don't think their APIs are magical. Um, no, no. And and I I, I think um, you know we've made this point earlier. It's, people aren't selecting it. They're not selecting the cloud saying, oh, this has a better API for what I need to do. It doesn't even sound like they're making a decision that has a better operational pattern in some ways. What, what I want to know is how many people are using the cloud APIs directly instead of indirectly via, mm. let's say, Terraform or Pulumi? There's still a large number that's using, a, particularly in AWS Python. Um, whether it makes sense or not, there's a handful that, that use it uh, in a lot of ways for operational things, not so much the provisioning aspect. So like cleaning up AMIs, cleaning up unattached EBS volumes, there's still a lot of Python leverage there. Uh, some people use a PowerShell as well. Uh, obviously PowerShell is big on, on the Azure side. Uh, infrastructure as code is certainly taken over in that regard. 
Uh, so that has abstracted some of that, uh, but there's still some some use cases for directly interacting with the API. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I, I myself still, still still use direct API interaction, as I said, with like via Python. Um, when I okay. do need, need to do, for example, authentication, some kind of scripting. Do you, do you I mean, consider the CLI direct API, or is the CLI its own thing? I would consider CLI to not be direct API. Okay. I, I when, when I say direct API, I, I would mean actually doing an HTTP request to their API endpoint. I I, I just because I agree with I agree with your statement. To me, the CLIs are actually the most durable APIs or interaction points available, right? They, they, though the CLIs are durable across a lot more generations of the API than the APIs are. From that that perspective, like they work, they work really hard to put wrappers in the the CLIs from an abstraction perspective. Um, the Terraform stuff is actually pretty leaky um, <laughs> as far as, because uh, they, they iterate whole new versions and change syntax of things. Um, yes. Uh, Terraform providers change very frequently. Um, that was supposed to be the reason for the uh, the new is it control tower or whatever AWS was working on. Uh, I haven't seen it. Heard of that. API changes. People got tired of API changes, so they wanted <laughs> a, a, a API. Like you could say, I want this version of that of the API when you make a call. I think it was supposed to be like a unified API wrapper on top of their API. Uh, hmm. Let's just make it more complicated. Uh, Isn't that what Kubernetes is? <laughs> I, a lot of people are treating Kubernetes, and this might be a good segue as the um, and and what is the company that does uh, crossplane just landed a upbound uh, put in sixty million funding, um, trying to use Kubernetes CRDs as the um, replacement API for infrastructure for for infrastructure. So you define a CRD, and and that's your your API. Talk about as the data center API. Yeah, that to me feels like a regression. But uh, also, I'm I'm curious. Um, it, it's I I don't I don't think the the CRDs are mature enough versioning wise. Um, <laughs> but uh, it it could. But it, it it could be ju just me being opinionated on, on on me not having used these tools uh, recently. Um, but yeah, um, uh, I can and, and we'll talk about this in two weeks when I show you the resource abstractions we've been doing because we we can do like generic objects, but it's really hard to write a good object and have a persistent schema for it. Um, it's really, really hard. Yes, yes. And, and uh, once I, you've I, written it and stored data in it, then it's it's there. I, I don't. That, yeah. But I'm like, like ah. Yeah. And on that same issue applies to series like uh, as well. Yeah. And uh, I, I, 
I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. CRTs are, are, are great, but um, they're a little bit like, like writing applications in C. You, you get a lot of flexibility. Mm. It's also very easy to shoot yourself in a, in a foot with it. Um, especially if you abuse CRDs or if you start mixing um, CRDs that, that are either admission controllers or, or mutators, and then to start muting each other. Uh-huh. Um, been there, done that. <laughs> I, that's I, I've been watching the uh, Metal Metal Three project that Red Hat's trying to do to make a a bare metal machine controller. Obviously, a personal interest of of mine to watch. But they keep making CRDs that have like, oh, this has all of the BIOS settings for a server baked into a CRD. I'm like. That's a path to madness. Um, well, uh, speaking of path to madness, have you uh, have you looked at the Harvester HCI? No. So, so this is um, here's the link. So it, it it's a it's a SUS, uh, implementation. So basically, it's using Kubernetes as the foundation for creating a an edge hci of like a hyperconverged uh infrastructure okay. and i, I huh. it, it, it it's i'm having a hard time finding the use case for this like i i, I know i know what what they're aiming for oh but okay. i, I i'm and, and I see the problem that, that they're trying to resolve to, to resolve there, but I, I, I'm having a hard time finding situations where their particular implementation would be um, a, a better choice than, than a, a more distributed platform. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is the and harvester comes from the rancher. This is a rancher lab scheme. Yep. Type of thing. Yeah. And and I haven't seen that much on Kubevert lately, as far as the using you know as as a as a better way to schedule. Um, uh, Uh, I, just, and then I haven't you, seen it. Yeah, and then you look at the system requirements. And, and, I mean, and they're pretty, pretty high. And like you, you need, uh, like it's, it's eight core processor minimum, thirty-two gigs of RAM, um, high IOPS uh, disk. Like the, this seems to be at odds with what we're seeing with with edge, uh, uh, at least uh, edge type. Uh, services where the, the uh, aim is. Well, I mean, you you yeah. can ha- you, you do have high high processor, uh, high core processors and in, 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 in edge servers, um, mm-hmm. but you, you, your workloads typically don't require that. So, um, and this is probably just the overhead from from using Kubevert, but uh, you you're. You're spending a lot of compute resources on on the control plane there. 
Yeah. Well, and you're you're also creating a very a relatively dynamic control plane for something that is probably more static. Um, but th- this to me is the and I've, I've, I'm watching this, this is the same thing with the cross-plane stuff. It's like, we're going to use Kubernetes as the API for all things. Um, because that's the, the drive is to create this standard API. Um, this is an infrastructure API too. We're going to yeah. define VMs as, um, you know, uh, Kubernetes YAML. Yeah. And, and, and don't get me wrong. It's yeah. very attractive to, to, to try to use Kubernetes uh, as the control plane. Um, it, 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 in a sense, it gives you a standard, a, a standard to operate on. Like if, if you know it runs on, on one Kubernetes cluster, you can, as long as your Kubernetes version is the same, you're almost guaranteed for it to, to run on a different cluster. But yeah, that breaks down um, to me when it comes to infrastructure, right? Cause we're, we we're talking yeah. even at the beginning with Amazon, Amazon is different. The, the clouds aren't standardized on um, you know, Kubernetes. You can standardize cause it's containers and services. When you, you throw infrastructure in there, the, the variation creeps in, like, at, in the first degree. And that's, yeah. so I, I look yeah. at this, you know, um, and, and Kubernetes APIs are designed to handle infrastructure, re, resource models for infrastructure. Yeah. Actually, it makes me think all the way back to... Um, uh, what was that thing that uh, Twitter open sourced? Um, super complex. Um, it was a before in, in the Kubernetes days. It was one of the contenders for um, for resource management. It was up and coming. Um, actually, happy it's purged out of my brain. It'll come. It'll come. I don't back remember to that me. at all. Um. Oh, they, they they just they rebranded the company from um Is that D2 IQ used to be Mesosphere? Mesosphere. Mesos. Oh Mesosphere. I remember them. They were you know, back in the day, they were like a big um they were a big contender for, you know, it was like Kubernetes, Mesospheres, a couple others that were like mm-hmm. Swarm. Um, yeah. Swarm. Cloud Foundry. Yeah, um, Cloud Foundry, right. Nomad. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I kind of see where, where you're getting that, that, that like, dude, I see some parallels to, to, to message you here. Personally, I, I'm i getting more of an OpenStack vibe out of this. Huh. Like the, I am ge- curious. Ge- just generalization for the sake of generalization on the... Mm. And and you you're you're sacrificing the adaptability as a result. Meaning the the desire to have a single API, a single API standard that that then solves all problems, or uh, yes, yeah, uh, and that that and and again, like the when you're trying to, to create a platform that's generic enough to, to be able to run any workload, it, it it's ends up being not specialized enough to run any workload well. <laughs> the opinionated. I, it's one of the things that OpenStack did that I still think was a big mistake was they decided to be um, hypervisor agnostic behind the scenes instead of just saying it's KVM, damn it. 
Yeah. Because, no, well, I, I yeah. remember being involved in a lot of those discussions uh, about that. That was definitely a specific decision to mm-hmm. be hypervisor agnostic. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and Zen, Zen and Citrix were internet. early early adopters, right? Citrix was one of the or initial yeah. premier sponsors, so it was a requirement. Right, and, and Rackspace's we even cloud was all VMware Citrix. into it, right? And and Microsoft yeah. Yeah. and Hyper-V. Mm-hmm. Academically, it makes sense, but unfortunately, the, the academics is not always. Uh, up to date with the uh, with the reality of, of, of what customers require. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think, and this this is really goes back to the Martian headset thing, which is uh, you know nice nice that we keep coming back to theme, right? Because part of the idea of being hypervisor aware is that you would bring you would show up with VMs um, and import them into the cloud, and so being hypervisor aware marginally gave you some benefit with that. But I, I don't see people like VMs are not our unit of portability anymore. Right. <laughs> and, um, and, and it's it's cheaper to to basically use something like Packer to to create VMs for different hypervisors than to to create a, a, a generic VM. Yeah. At least in cheaper in terms of effort. Well, it's it's the it's we're back to where the abstraction points are, right? Linux Linux as an abstraction point um, has made it simple enough for us to be like, yeah, that's we'll just drop an OS on you. I don't need to have all the other other bits and pieces. Um, Funny enough, uh, speaking yeah. speaking of uh, Linux uh, as an abstraction. Uh, th- there was a, a recent uh, discussion on, on Reddit on, on one of the the FreeBSD subreddits uh, about uh, yeah about Docker and Kubernetes on 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 BSD uh, and why it hasn't happened uh, and why it likely won't happen uh, because again it's like containerization has adopted uh, Linux and, and and C groups and on, on all the tools that Linux provides as the standard and that has left. Uh, the other OSs are, uh, out in in the cold. Like even Mac OS and, and Windows don't don't really run containers natively. The the you you either run them in a VM or or or, or like WSL yeah. or. Well, a lot of containers are run in VMs. Yeah, that's not yeah. uncommon. I would say the majority, right? We haven't we haven't seen the push to containers on metal that we've. You know, we I stopped waiting for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's just right. not worth it. It's it's not that hard to spin up a hypervisor, or expensive. Right. And 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 yeah, yeah and they're pretty the lightweight, also. right? They don't they don't take up a huge number of resources. That's the trick. That, that's I mean, true, and and, and macOS and and, and and Linux don't have native containerization tools. Uh, what what stands out on on the on, on the BSD side is that they do have their their, their process isolation tools. Yeah. Well, to, Linux is at it. Hello, truth. That's what. That's all it is. <laughs> that's what I've always said. Containers is. That's all there. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, and but yeah, it's it, it, it's 
it, it's a it's an interesting case that that I find that that the BSD community refuses to to adopt the the essentially the Linux API for containers. Um, well, they're justified or not, uh, that's a longer discussion. We probably don't have time for that. Uh, it gets back to market and business decisions. I feel like yeah. the way is better. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I said, like it, I, I'm not faulting the FreeBSD community for sticking to their guns. Um, they, like, BSD has a very specific community with, with particular use cases, which is not the same as Linux. Uh, wanting to run Linux compatible workloads on BSD is arguably not the end goal either. Right. Well, the question is, is you know, how, how married are you to a given platform? You know, the people that are writing applications don't give a crap. You know, what hypervisor is it down there? I don't care. <laughs> My husband's a software developer. He he claims he knows something about operating systems and hypervisors, but he knows nothing about operating systems and hypervisors. And why should he? He just writes software. <laughs> uh, th th that brings up a, another question also uh, about uh, how dependent are you on, on a platform? Like if, like right now, the Linux community is fairly unified because uh, Linus is still, to a degree, guiding the the development. Yeah. What will happen when Linus steps back? Right. Uh, and, and and I mean, this is not not it's not an isolated case either. Look look at what happened with the Rust community last week, uh, where the uh, um, basically, the uh, um, the uh, the moderation team in mass quit because the core team was was throwing their their weight around too much. Like the the, the core team was basically making um, unsupervised changes. Uh, on, on. So, what will happen with with the Rust community now? What will happen to the developers that have written applications in Rust? I mean, you can still compile them as they are, but will you be able to continue doing updates, bug fixes? Good question. No, it's a serious question, yeah. Anyway. I'm stepping down from my soapbox. <laughs> no, it's, it's uh, maintainability. All this stuff is is absolutely critical, um, and that's you know that's the interesting thing about a lot of these APIs is that and and where all this intersects with right to repair discussions and vendor platforms um, is that you you know we're we're the sustainability of the API is a critical, critical component, right? And, and um, that's what, you know, part of it becoming a standard. And I think one of the reasons we, the vendors resist the standardization pieces is that um, as soon as it's become, as soon as it's uh, a standard, then it's 
incredibly hard to change, improve, or fix. Unless you're, you're back to fighting in committee. <laughs> um, and if and if you take a if you approach a standard as a malleable thing, then then all of a sudden you've got these wacky variant problems. Right? My browser works with my web with with my uh, web server, and that's about it. That that is perhaps a, a an interesting experiment to, to to look at. Like, what's the mean time to degradation for standards? How, how long do, do standards usually last before they're abandoned? They last a long time. It, I mean, partially long depends. Long but um, there's a lot of standards, um, and I will use one of Rob's favorites. Um, <laughs> the the IPMI standard. Right, we can't get rid of it. Mm. <laughs> That's right. It's it's and and the the thing about IPMI is that we figured out how to work around the quirks. The basic functions are the same, and rock on, we're doing pretty well with it. Right, but the um, the fact is, is IPMI was designed what at this point twenty five years ago, thirty years ago. That's right. <laughs> and, well, and the basic and the basic verbs were were. Pretty well understood, um, yeah. but it's not like we're using it to patch BIOS, right? We're using it for power on, power off, reset, you know, and control minimal control functions, which is what it did originally. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, we haven't we haven't piggybacked other stuff on top of it, right? Uh, another one that we haven't been able to piggyback other stuff on it is DDI, right? Uh, DNS, DHCP. I mean, that, that's shoehorned. <laughs> uh, we, we talked about DNS some extra load. <laughs> and you were saying DNS, yeah. And DNS, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's a cluster. It's so out of date. It has no security whatsoever. I mean, they tried to shoehorn in the, you know, they had the DNS sex stuff. But, uh-huh. um, oh, <laughs> for that matter, IPv4. Which is still mm. there. Incredibly durable. <laughs> SNMP. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of standards out there that have that are literally decades old. PGP? And, so yeah. yeah PGP. So 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 then but perhaps my follow-up question would be um are there things that we're calling standards now that we shouldn't be calling standards because they're not as durable? Ooh, that is, that's the wrap up question. We want them to, we want to feel like these things are standards and they're, they're, they're not. Yeah. They're, they're vendor specs. Which gets back to our whole circle because it's top of the hour for back to de facto standards. Mm-hmm. A lot to think about. Hmm. All right. <laughs> I'm going to leave it on that. Everybody, thank you for the, the, the provocative uh, discussion. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Think about. Yeah. Cool. I'll see you next week. Yeah. Cheers. Wow, a great discussion about standards or lack of standards 
Uh, I hope you have found this really fascinating and interesting. Um, we love to talk about how standards and systems interconnect to create better DevOps experiences, better operational experiences. So please join us at the2030.cloud and I will see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.